0: You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we are continuing on in our study in the book of Ephesians called Beyond Imagination. And and, and our goal for this series is that we would pursue God's unimaginable vision for His church so that He would receive much glory. Uh, Pursue God's unimaginable vision for His church so that He might receive much glory. Glory. It's when we recognize as God's people what God is doing in and through us, that He glorifies Himself, that He brings glory through the work that He has done in us and that He's doing through us. And so throughout Ephesians chapter 1, we saw just how vast, how cosmic, how unimaginable God's plan for the church really is. Let me just recap some of the themes that were flowing through Ephesians 1. It is The church is vast in time and, and space. It, his plan is vast in the sense of time. He formed this plan from eternity past. He is sovereignly working this plan out in the present, and he has given us the Spirit to make sure that he makes good on his guarantee all throughout eternity, future. But not only does God's unimaginable vision for His church span all of time, it also spans all of space. God's plan to bless His people is secure in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. That was a theme that showed up all throughout chapter 1. It's going to show up again in chapter 2. This is the spiritual realm where the angels and the demons can see clearly and understand the supremacy of God. And so he blesses his saints in Christ who is now seated in the heavenly places. At the end of chapter 1 he said that's far above all rule and authority on earth and in heaven. And so we are blessed in Christ, in the heavenly places. And right now, God is working out all these things in time and space toward the end goal of, in Ephesians 1, uniting all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. That's the goal. He is moving forward toward a day when all of the fallenness, all of the broken relationships of this fallen world will be set right in Christ and God will dwell forever with His people in a new heavens and a new earth. Can't you wait? And right now, He is carrying out that plan through His church. Which is why the church is, is a concept that is beyond imagination. The all-supreme Savior King, Jesus Christ, has been given to the church as her head. And she is his body. The church is the primary outworking of God's cosmic plan in the present age. And she is intended, there therefore, to be a foretaste of the unity that we are going to experience at the end of time. Which means that what is happening in the church is far more than what we typically think is happening in the church. It's far more than we ever give credit to. It's of the utmost importance. And we as believers need to see our role in it. But that may leave the average believer with the question how do I know if I have a role in God's plan? how do I know what it is? If God's plan is so big and so cosmic, how can I, little old me, possibly play a part in it? Like, wouldn't God just want to focus on like saving powerful people and and, like celebrities and people where he could really get some work done through them? Doesn't he have some really important Christians that he could use, like missionaries or something like that, however we would define important? Or some other believers might might take a different approach to that and say, wait, this is such a big plan. That is intense. Like, we had better get to work. I had better try harder and start living up to God's expectations of me. And, And what if I don't? Oh, my word, this is such a burden. How can I even know if God still has a place for me when I just mess up his plan all the time. And either one of those directions would miss the point of Paul's teaching on our place in God's plan because God includes us in his sovereign plan as an act of his glorious grace. Rather than assuming that God doesn't care about our participation in his plan, and rather than assuming that the burden for that participation falls upon us, we must learn instead to rely on God's abundant grace to produce the life that He desires in us. Rely on God's abundant grace to produce the life that He desires in you. That's our big idea for the day. Your Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 2 and uh You can think of it this way. If if you think of Ephesians chapter 1 as a a picture of a beautiful, lush forest, and you're looking at the entire forest, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 zooms us in so that we can see how each one of those trees comes to life to make up that forest. And then next week, as we get into the rest of chapter 2, we're going to zoom back out and we're going to look at the whole forest again. We get little glimpses of the forest through the trees here today, but, but this is how do we become a part of it? Notice the transition words that take us from chapter one to chapter two, looking in your Bible. It's the first two words. And you and you. It's very important words. Any transition words as you're doing your study and your reading plan, those are those are things that you want to look at very carefully. And you. The word and connects this thought to the one that came before it. So so really, this is a continuation in chapter 2 of all of the thoughts that he had in chapter 1. And the word you makes it personal. The, The blessings of God's grace aren't just theoretical happening out there to some people generally. The blessings of God's grace are personal being poured out on you who believe, you who are in Christ, you who are in His body in a particular local church reading this letter. The grace is toward you, but how do you know if you are part of the you? I mean, this this letter was written to some other church some long time ago, and it wasn't written to everyone in Ephesus, or it wasn't written to everyone in the churches that are in Everyone in the cities that this this circulated through, it was written to the churches in those particular cities, to the saints. And so how can we know if we are part of the recipients of this grace? How do individuals become part of the people of God and partakers of the grace of God? That's the question this section is answering as Paul carries out his flow of thought in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the richest explanations of the gospel in all of Scripture. But interestingly enough, it is not directed at unbelievers, like some people limit the gospel to. It's not telling people how to be saved. It's telling people how they were saved and why they were saved. And what difference that makes in their lives today. You see, we never grow past the gospel. We grow in and through the gospel. And so you could call Ephesians 2, 1-10, to the gospel for believers. The gospel for believers. Let's look at it, reading the whole thing together in one shot. And you were dead. In chapter 1, Paul was talking about God's plan being to the praise of His glorious grace. And in chapter 2, we see that grace rush toward people who are dead in their sin. And through this great presentation of the gospel to the believer, we can see three reasons we must rely on grace. I want you to see these clearly this morning. And the first is this, without grace, we are pitifully dead in our sin. Without grace, we are pitifully dead in our sin. In order for Paul to show us how much we need God's grace, he has to remind us who we were apart from God's grace. And so he clearly and thoroughly describes the situation of those who are not in Christ, remembering, of course, that we were part of those who were not in Christ. And so first he says that, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the primary description of the first three verses. Uh, Dead is the nature of all those who are apart from Christ. And so he's going to pile up a number of other descriptions on top of this, but they are all connected. At this point, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't just bad. You didn't just do things that were wrong. You were dead. Spiritually dead. You were incapable of producing life in yourself. You were incapable of truly enjoying life for the purpose for which you were created. You were completely separated from God and therefore dead. You were dead in Your trespasses and sins. You had tried to walk on the glory land that only belongs to God. You committed serious trespass. Far worse than trespassing in Area 51 or something like that. The course of your life was completely headed in the wrong trajectory, down the wrong path that leads to destruction. It was full of sin. That's what sin is going down the wrong path that leads to destruction you were dead it's been said by many and it bears repeating that jesus did not just come to make bad people good or good people better he came to make dead people alive and there is not one person alive who can accurately share a testimony of their salvation saying i've i've just always believed in jesus don't, don't ever say that. If you're giving your testimony, don't ever say, I've just always believed in Jesus. It's a lie. It's a lie that you can't believe for yourself. It's dangerous for you to believe that for yourself. Because even if you were four years old, when you came to understand your sin and your need for a Savior, your condition prior to that time is that of being dead. And it's essential. It's essential that we understand that. Without the grace of God, we are just a bunch of dead men and women walking. So this is the the first Sunday in October, right? Which means that our society begins to celebrate Halloween. And uh, I went to a neighborhood the other day to pick up something from Facebook Marketplace, and I was greeted on either side of the neighborhood by not one, but five 10-foot tall statues of skeletons. I was like, what neighborhood is this? Like on either side of the, like as soon as you turned into the neighborhood, like our culture is obsessed with the living dead. You even see this in zombie movies and shows like The Walking Dead, right? Even, get this, the U.S. Center for Disease Control has recognized the popularity of this concept and created a zombie apocalypse blog on their government website, to teach emergency preparedness. The idea of the walking dead intrigues and fascinates and even concerns many in our culture. How much more, how much more should we be concerned every day that in real life we are surrounded by dead men walking? No, they won't eat your brains. But they are destined for eternal destruction in hell. They were born with the virus of sin infecting their hearts and we were once there. They are those who need the antidote of saving grace, the antidote that you have been given as a gift. And that should motivate you to see the people around you differently as we go to our job and interact with our neighbors. I was sitting at my son's soccer game yesterday thinking about this sermon coming up and just looking around and saying, there's a whole bunch of dead people here. I mean, not all of them. But a lot of them. And I'm not saying that you should be scared of that. I'm not saying run away from them and retreat from them. I'm saying rush to rescue them. Prepare for the coming destruction by calling all to faith in Jesus Christ. Because right now, they are walking in the flow of our culture, which leads to destruction. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We can see this as we interact in our culture. There is a flow to our culture, isn't there? There is a flow to this world, a flow even to our own lives that is hardwired into every human being. We are all following the same course, the course of this world. Like a herd of cattle being driven in a certain direction, we are all mindlessly moving toward that which we think is greener pastures. But our cattle driver is deceitfully evil. He is called the prince of the power of the air. And he does not want what is best for us. He is promising us greener pastures, but really leading to the slaughterhouse. He's called the devil, the deceiver, the one who rebelled against God and made, his, made him his enemy. That's who Paul is saying, that every person naturally follows from birth the prince of the power of the air. And just like Adam and Eve followed into his deception, so too we, by choice and by nature, walked right into his temptation traps. And as such, apart from Christ, everyone has the same spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That sounds like a good name for a biker gang, doesn't it? Sons of disobedience. But in all reality, everyone is born with that kind of sin in our DNA. And we are all hell-bent on disobeying God. And so we find our family in that biker gang. We are blood-born members into it. The sons of disobedience. And it is alongside or in or among that family that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body. Whatever felt good to our fallen flesh, whatever seemed right to our fallen minds, that is the desire that we carried out. Apart from intervening grace, we would never ask the question that Christians ask, what would bring the most glory to God? That's that's not at all, a part of our mindset without grace. makes no sense to the one who is dead in their sin. The question is always instead, what can I do to get out of this messy situation that I found myself in? The question is instead, what can I do to ease the pain of a fallen world? The question is instead, what can I do to produce the most satisfaction in my life? What can I do to gain that sense of transcendence and glory that my heart longs for without turning to God? There's got to be a way to do it without turning to God. That's the mindset of the flesh. And that's the mindset of every person apart from Jesus Christ. And because we never would look to God for those answers on our own, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see how we deserved it, right? We we turned on God and justly deserved His wrath. This is such an important statement for everyone to understand the gospel and what it is. Mankind by nature are not children of God. You've heard people say that, right? We're all God's children. No, by nature we're not. Every single one of us, no matter your race, gender, social status, personality profile, or family background, every single one of us starts out deserving God's wrath, both by nature and by deed. We all share in the common plight apart from God, which means that we all need the same salvation. Got to hold on to that because it's coming in the coming weeks. He's leveling the foot of the cross. That's what makes the church so different from the rest of the world. Because no one comes with more value than another. No one can posture or earn their way to the top because we all need the same redeeming grace. We are all created by God in His image, but because of Adam's sin, we are not born with a disposition toward God. Our hearts are not naturally inclined to seek Him and give Him glory. We are not generally good-natured people. We are sin-natured people. Yes, we may be nice. We may do good things by God's common grace, but that is not God's definition of holiness. Because of our sin nature, we are still deserving of God's wrath. We are children of wrath along with the rest of mankind. And so Paul is intending to to pile up all of these word pictures, dead in our sin, walking in the course of this world, following the devil, finding our family in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, children of wrath. He's intending to pile up all of these word pictures so that we would see how utterly pitiful and hopeless we are apart from redeeming grace. He's showing us that we bring nothing to the table of salvation. To borrow another illustration from Halloween and thriller movies, it's like being trapped in a coffin buried alive. And each of these realities that Paul mentions is like another nail holding it shut. Every person apart from Christ is dead. It is a terrifying, inescapable, claustrophobic, doomed and hopeless reality. And relying on ourselves to produce the life that God desires is futile. It's almost laughable because of how incapable we are to do it apart from God's intervening work of grace. If we think that we're just naturally going to fall in line with God's desires and His plan for us, if we think we're going to improve ourselves to some point that that would make us more savable, if we think we're not going to need to fight our sin in flesh in God's power, and that we're just going to automatically start following Him if we put it on cruise control, then we don't understand our fallen condition very well. The Christian life is impossible to live in our own power Because we have none. Our flesh wants to go right along with the course of the world which is following against the desires of God. And without God stepping in and converting our hearts, without relying on His grace alone to save us, we will massively fail. We will die. But notice the tense of these verses that these two words, of these two words that keep getting repeated. Were... And once. Were and once. You were dead. You once walked. You all once lived in the passions of the flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. Paul knows that his intended recipients have a new spiritual reality that is different from where they first began. Remember, he's writing this letter to be read by churches, the saints, or set apart ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to this to those who have been united to Christ through faith, relying solely upon the grace of God for their salvation. By the way, if you have not turned from your sin, if you have not turned from the course of this world, and you're just going along in the desires of the passions of your flesh, and your mind doing what seems best to you, seeking merely what feels good, what seems right in the moment, if you're still following on in that course, then listen, it's revealing that you are still dead. It's revealing that you're still dead. If you are not in Christ, you are in sin, and you are dead. There is no hope for you except to call upon the grace of God that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. You cannot improve yourself enough. You cannot make yourself right with God. You can't go to church enough. You can't be nice enough. You can't, you can only throw yourself upon the grace of God. And you can do that today if God is opening your eyes to that reality. Dead people don't know that they're dead until the Spirit gives them life. And I pray that the Spirit is calling some to life today. Is He calling you? Is He calling you? And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ and surrounded by His grace, then you were defined and controlled by these things, but you are not defined by them any longer. You are not defined by your sin. You are defined by grace. It's so important that you incorporate these words into your vocabulary. Were and once. Were and once. You were defined and controlled by sin, but you are defined and controlled by Christ. You once only did what, was, what felt good in your flesh, but that's not how you make decisions anymore as a pattern of life because you know and your eyes have been opened to the tremendous grace of God that is at work in you. And so you need these words were and once in your vocabulary because you need to understand just how rich God's grace was toward you. You need to remember that without grace you were pitifully dead. You could not have been further away from God. Even if you were saved as a young child, you were still following the course of this world. You had had every potential for terrible, offensive sin in your heart. And God had to rescue you from that condition. It required a miraculous work of God's grace to to save you from your sin nature, and it's going to require a continual work of God's grace to keep rescuing you from the sin that remains. If you are ever tempted to rely on your own power to do spiritual work, remember how dead you were apart from intervening grace. And remember that you are only alive today in the Spirit because of His work of grace. Which leads to the second reason we must rely on grace. By grace, we are powerfully raised to life. By grace, we are powerfully raised in life. Look at verses 4 to 7 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul transitions from who we once were to who God always is. He says, but God. But God. God is going to enter the picture with a very different response to our sin than we would naturally imagine. He's going to enter this picture of wrath-deserving, lust-driven, enemy-following, death-inducing sin. And instead of saying, throw it all in the trash, he's going to say, here is where I will show my grace. Here is where it will shine most brightly. That's unfathomable. Because if we were God, praise the Lord, we're not. But if we were God, we would say, no, give them what they deserve. They, they turn on me like that, I'll show them. And so God saving us in this way only serves to reveal how much greater His glory is than ours how much greater his nature is than our own paul says but god being rich in mercy mercy is god withholding what we deserve it is his compassion his pity on our pitiful state in our sin we think we deserve something better from god but really we deserve death we deserve eternal separation from him But God is merciful and not just merciful, rich in mercy. In our sin, we think, how could God possibly save me? Because I don't relate to anyone like that. But God is rich in mercy. He has storehouses of mercy. He has eternal, limitless mercy that will never run out toward those he saves in Christ. He has sufficient mercy to cover the worst of sinners. As we sometimes sing, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And so we might ask, well, why? Why is he so rich in mercy? And Paul answers that question by saying, because of the great love with which he has loved us. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we discussed adoption. Why does God love us? Why does God choose us? Why does God show us mercy? And the answer is because He is love. You, you can't look for that question, to the, the answer to the question why in, in some quality that is found in yourself or in relationship to anything else other than God. God loved you because of God. He loved you because He is love, because of His great love. It's not dependent on anything He sees in us. He is not influenced by forces outside of Himself, which means that your ongoing performance doesn't earn or influence His love either. God loves because of His love, because love is what extends from His nature, from His heart, and that's why He extends His mercy even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were at our most unlovely and unlovable, that is when God acted. That is when God made us alive together with Christ. This is the primary verb, the primary activity in the First seven verses, this is the heart of the whole sentence that God made us alive together with Christ. And here again is this beautiful doctrine of union with Christ. That's a phrase that you need to understand as a believer union with Christ. Remember that God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world that to those whom God shows are chosen in relationship to the person and work of Christ. Meaning that when Christ died, we died. Our old sin nature died. It no longer had ruling authority over us. It was put to death in Christ. And when He rose again, we rose again. We were raised to newness of life in Christ. We said it this way in our study of chapter 1, that God worked His great power that He worked when He rose Jesus from the dead. He's working that same power toward those who believe. By the way, this is what is pictured in baptism, right? Going under the water is representing that we have died with Christ. We are declaring that we have died with Him, being Raised out of the water, we are declaring that we have been raised with him, that we have a new life that is in relationship to Christ and the church. And if you have never entered the waters of baptism as a believer in Jesus Christ, I would so encourage you to do that. We're going to have a baptism coming up in November because God is doing this work in our midst right now. And I'm so excited for that. I'll let those people tell you their story when that time comes. But let me just tell you, God has brought some dead people to life recently, and this is this making alive is the essence of salvation. Salvation is not getting to go to heaven at the end of life. Dwight prayed that earlier. That that we would not think of salvation as something at the end of life that's going to get sorted out then. Salvation is coming to life now. And coming to life is an act of God's grace. Paul says at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. He's going to pick up on that refrain again in verse 8. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, flowing in power toward the dead unbeliever to raise them to life in Christ. But grace does not just bring us to life and then let us go like one of those wind-up toys that you would get at the fair or carnival. You remember those? Right? Like you'd wind them up and then eventually they'd either run out or fall off the table. No, that's not grace. Grace is in a, a constant and abiding connection to Christ's resurrection life and power that never runs out. Grace is God saying, staying with us. Grace is God staying with us. To set us on a new path of righteousness and wisdom that leads to new life. Grace is God equipping us by His Spirit to live with Him in power forever. Which is why Paul says that God not only raised us with Christ, but He also seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This theme has shown up so much in the first chapter that we are blessed in Christ in the heavenly places, that Christ has seated us in the heavenly places uh, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And from that place, He is the head of the church. And all that can be true of us as individuals because we have been seated with Him in those heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are both raised and seated with Him because we are in Him. We are no longer in the flesh. We are no longer dead in our sin. We are alive in Him. But His grace doesn't stop there. Just like those nails were getting pounded into the coffin, now now these truths are being lined up and raising us up out into the highest places, right? Right? His grace doesn't stop at just saving us and giving us a new life. Here's the purpose of God showing us grace both in the past and the present. Look at verse seven. So that, it's a purpose statement. He made you alive together with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If we were to ask, why did you save me, God? Why why did you show me grace? He does not answer that question by saying, Because I needed you. He, He does not answer that question by saying, Because I thought you would perform well under my guidance. Because I thought you would make a great intern for little God. Why did you save me, God? God answers that question by saying, so that I could keep showing you the immeasurable riches of my grace toward you. This is so important for us to understand, especially those of us who think that God is sort of disappointed with us in the way that we have performed as people for him. Or who think that he's waiting for us to improve ourselves before he comes toward us more. You do your part now, I will do my part. We just have this little tit for tat with God. You know, God's posture toward His people is not one of stingy grace. His grace has no expiration date like the milk in your refrigerator. There's no point at which His grace runs dry. The whole goal of His saving us is so that He would keep pouring out His grace in the coming ages, both in this age and the one to come, because grace is part of His glory. We bring God glory when we rely solely upon His grace. The story is told of a little boy who came from a poor home where he often went hungry and had to ration his food and drink. And so if you ever had a glass of milk, it was only ever half full or it had to be shared with two or more children. Well, he got hurt and he was taken to a local hospital and the nurse brought him a tall, full glass of milk. But being used to sharing his glass of milk with other children, he asked the nurse, how deep shall I drink? Should I drink just a quarter, a half? The nurse holding back tears said, drink all, child. Drink deep. And this is how Paul wants us to relate to God's grace through this passage, that we would not drink sparingly of God's grace. That we would not rely upon His grace just enough to be counted as saved. But that we would drink deep. That we would drink it all. All. That we would see His purpose, His intention, His eager longing to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You cannot exhaust the limits of God's grace. You cannot test their boundaries and find their end. They will never run out throughout all the coming ages because His purpose is to show how immeasurable they are. Do you view God's grace as that inexhaustible? Do you view God's grace as that necessary for your very life? Now, some people become uncomfortable when we start talking about grace like this you start talking about limitless grace, people are just going to start taking advantage of it. People are going to start thinking that they can just live however they want, it doesn't matter, and they can just sin and whatever. But listen, that's not how grace works. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding of grace to think that that's what's going to happen. Because grace, true grace, takes us out of dead and futile ways of thinking. And grace gives us new life and new way of thinking that is consistent with our spiritual position in Christ. Without grace, we are pitifully dead in our sin. By grace, we are powerfully raised in life. Now this, in grace, we are providentially created in Christ. In grace, we are providentially created in Christ. Verses 8-10 through For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a a new way of life. There is a new providential plan for all those who have encountered the grace of God. In verse 8, Paul reiterates the power for our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the prepositions there are really important. By and through. High schoolers, English class matters. By and through. We are not saved by our faith. It is not the quality or the quantity of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. We are saved by God out of the abundance of His character of grace. He is the actor. He is the source and the object of our faith. And He saves us by grace. You can think of it this way. Faith is the the vehicle by which God delivers grace to us. And that's because faith is the exact posture that says, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that I cannot save myself. I cannot live for myself. I am who you say I am. I am dead in my sin apart from you. And with you, I can be alive in Christ. And so you are my only Savior and Lord. I need you to come to me and save me and take control of my life. Faith has been referred to as the anti-work. The opposite of working for our salvation because it is given by God precisely for the reason that we might trust God and no longer trust our own accomplishments or performance. Paul even emphasizes this again. He says, salvation is not by works. This is not of your own doing. This is not of your own doing. This is not of your own doing. It is by grace. Salvation by works Our own works and salvation by grace are two mutually exclusive spheres. If our salvation was by works, it cannot be by grace. You wouldn't need grace if you could work for your salvation. If it was by works, you would get the glory, not God. You'd be like, yeah, God saved me, but but did you see that little part that I did? Isn't that how we function in our sin? God deserves far more glory than that far more glory. Why? Because apart from grace, you were dead in sin. But that does not mean that salvation does not involve good works. Paul continues, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created in Christ Jesus, restored in the image of God with the resurrection life of Jesus, enlivening our bodies, and we are created anew for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. The best way I can illustrate this is with an image that all of us see multiple times a week here in Lancaster County, the Amish horse and buggy. You probably passed like five buggies on your way to church this morning, right? And we even say it that way, don't we? we? We say we passed five buggies. Emphasis on the buggy, right? We take the horse for granted. Poor horse. Did all the work, and we say we passed a buggy. But did you happen to pass any buggies riding down the road without a horse? Like, like where maybe an Amishman was pulling the buggy by himself. No, no. How about this? Did did you pass any buggies down the road where the buggy was pulling the horse from out in front? It's ridiculous. The horse always comes first. And in the Christian life, the horse is grace and the buggy is the works. And Christian works don't move apart from the power of grace. We can be so easily tempted to get the works buggy in front of the grace horse. You can be so tempted to just look at at the buggy, look at the buggy, and just forget about the poor old horse. We emphasize what we do for God. We keep that out in front. We let our concept of grace lag behind. Sometimes we'll detach our works from grace altogether and think that we need to heave up our own works on our own. This is so important to understand. Grace is the power and the works are the vehicle. Don't get that out of order. But also, don't try going to ride down the street on your grace horse and leave your works buggy in the barn. Paul said that God crafted you. He created you in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like horses are specially trained to pull a buggy, true God-given grace is specially designed to empower good works in God's people. Paul uses another illustration here. In his grace, God has uniquely shaped us as a master craftsman for the very works God prepared for us. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. The word for workmanship refers to the work of a a master craftsman, a, a skilled, careful laborer that makes something useful. It's also the same word that we use for a piece of art, something that is designed intentionally and ha- that has beauty. God in His grace shaped and created each one of us intentionally for the way that He wants to use us in His plan, for good works. Even the works Himself themselves are a gift of His grace to you. He has prepared before the foundation of the world every single good work that you will walk in. But I want you to notice what it says here because we often lose sight of this because we are so honed in on the individual, right? It says, we are his workmanship. We together are his one singular workmanship. Yes, each individual, but in the context of the whole. Each individual is as part of the whole, as a member in His church. So we are His part, each part of His workmanship, just like a word that is specifically selected for its place in a poem. It's important. You don't have meter and time and rhyme without those words. We are each part of His workmanship, just like a single brushstroke. That makes up a grand artistic masterpiece. We are each part of his workmanship, just like a single piece of scroll work on an innate piece of cabinetry. We are his workmanship individually as part of a whole, as a member of the local church and the global church and the church of all time and space. That's his masterpiece. And these good works he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When is beforehand? I believe it's when he chose us from chapter one before the foundation of the world. God had a particular role in his plan specially designed for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ by which he would show the surpassing greatness of his power and the immeasurable riches of his grace toward you. You have good works to walk in. You once walked in the trespasses and sins of your flesh. You were dead in those things. You walked in deadness. Now you walk in good works because you are alive in Christ. See the contrast there from verse 2 to verse 10? And so you might ask, well, How do I know what the works are? Just kind of vague about it. Some people get all stressed out. Like, what if I miss some of them? What if I mess them up? What if I? Stop. Breathe. These are works that are prepared for you in grace. They are God's gift to you. And he's called you to them and equipped you for them and He has not hidden them from you. The works that God called you to are the works that are found in chapters 4 through 6 of this book. They are obedience to God in the various spheres of life in which He has placed you as an individual, in a family, in His church, in a particular community, as part of His worldwide plan. Listen, if you have a conversation with somebody today that is Bringing glory to God and relying upon His grace? That is a work that God prepared before you, the foundation of the world for you to walk in. That'll blow your mind. These good works God prepared for you are fulfilled as you obey Him in each of the roles and responsibilities He has given you. If you find yourself married with kids, Realize that He has given you the role and responsibility to carry out His plan in your family. Kids, He's given you a responsibility as children, to your parents, as brothers and sisters. That's part of God's call in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And He's clearly revealed His will for you and what that's supposed to look like in the Holy Scriptures. And He's given you the grace to do it. If you find yourself working at a job Realize that the the quality of the work that you do in that job and the way that you interact with those people around you and even just being at that job is part of His calling on you. It's not just pastors who are called. It's not just missionaries who are called. You are called where He has placed you to do the works that He has prepared for the foundation of the world for you. Let that change your perspective on your work this week. If you find yourself relating to one of your neighbors or maybe another kid at school, God has given you a job in relating to them to show Him His love. These things are all part of your calling. Nothing more, nothing less. Simply walking with God in His power, living out the new life that He has given you in Christ in every sphere in which He has placed you. And you can't work out the works of God apart from His powerful grace so there are two questions that you can ask in every single moment this week. Am I relying on my own flesh and experiencing death, gratifying the desires of my passion and flesh, fulfilling my own, every whimsical desire of my body and mind? That's the first question. Or am I relying on God's grace and experiencing His life? living out the purposeful plan that He's created for me to walk in. Which will it be for you? Which will it be for you this week? I pray that you would seek God and rely on the grace that He has shown in Jesus Christ and find it entirely sufficient and satisfying for every step you would take. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.